Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Every federal agency uses software. Too many pay through the nose. Technically, you don't buy software, you license it. And when you end up with more licenses than users, you waste money. The Government Accountability Office has found that's exactly what at least 10 departments do. More now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Acquisition Management, Carol Harris. Ms. Harris, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. And what you found is kind of a perennial problem. It's not necessarily having the software license, but having information about the extent of your licensing is what you found that is just a shortfall in a lot of places. That's exactly right. So in this study, we looked at the most widely used and costliest software licenses by vendor and product. And we also did a scrub of a subset of nine agencies to see whether they had under or over purchased their top five licenses. And what did you find? Had they over purchased, I'm guessing? (laughs) Yeah. So you know what? The results were quite fascinating. So we asked each of the 24 CFO Act agencies to give us their five most widely used software vendors with the highest quantity of licenses installed. And, you know, based on the final tally, we found a total of 36 vendors. Uh, 10 of those accounted for 73% of the licenses. Um, And if you go into our report, we've got this big prominent pie chart that identifies all the vendors, but those included Microsoft, Adobe, and Salesforce, to name a few. Similarly, when we looked at the highest amounts paid, you know, the costliest, there were 34 vendors that were paid the highest amounts for FY21, totaling about $5.2 billion government-wide. Nine of these vendors accounted for 77% of these licenses. Uh, Microsoft accounted for about a third of that pie, about 2.4 billion. Um, Other vendors included Adobe, who was reported 12 times, totaling about 63 and a half million. And Cisco, another example, reported four times, totaling about $1.1 billion. Right. So that's all well and good if you are using all the licenses that you have purchased, and that's what it's going to cost you. But you found that perhaps there is more licensing hanging around an agency than they're actually using, and therefore they're paying for potential, but not actually usage. Right. And, you know, we tried to do that analysis. So as part of it, okay, so we, I just, you know, broke out, okay, what's going on at the vendor level? Uh, The second part of what we were tasked to do was to look at it from the product level, you know, what were the most widely used and which were the costliest, but we weren't able to make that determination because, Agency software data are inconsistent and incomplete across the government. So, you know, for example, we found multiple software products that were bundled within a license agreement with a single vendor, and then agencies were unable to break out any detailed information from there. So, for example, Commerce, you know, they had about 140 specific products in their Microsoft agreement, but then they weren't able to identify, okay, from there, what was the highest installed products and what were the highest amounts paid among them? And so, you know, the bottom line here is that the lack of reliable data at this level means we really can't pursue government-wide solutions for volume purchasing and discounts, which is what OMB's category management initiative is all about. And we have open recommendations to OMB from a prior review that once implemented should close this gap. 
But let me go into my second objective that of our study, because this is really going into, you know, the, the focus that, that, that you're asking for, which is, you know, the under and over purchasing. So there are two practices that agencies really need to do in order to effectively identify the right sizing for their organization. Number one, they need to track software licenses that are currently in use. And number two, they need to regularly compare their license inventories to purchase records to determine over and under purchases. And from that subset of nine that we examined, none of them fully addressed either of these practices and therefore weren't able to determine whether or not for their five most widely used licenses, whether they've over or under purchased them. And like three agencies weren't tracking their licenses currently in use and four didn't regularly compare their inventories to, to purchase records. And, and this really was very disheartening. We're speaking with Carol Harris. She's Director of Information Technology and Acquisition Management at the GAO. And I guess maybe there's a couple of things going here. One is, you alluded to earlier, there is not necessarily a direct acquisition from the software vendor by the agency. There's a couple of tiers involved sometimes, and it might be a reseller or it might be an integrator that is delivering licenses through some other large contract. And therefore, maybe the numbers get buried in there. And maybe the second issue is agencies just overbuy licenses so that that 101st user doesn't log on and whoops, you can't work because we're at our limit of licenses. Right, absolutely. And you know, that under purchasing matters because ultimately when vendors come in to do their forensic analysis and they see that, okay, agencies are actually using more of our licenses or there is you know, um, a gap there and agencies need more, then that's gonna result in additional fees called true up fees that can actually be quite costly. And what's really most disheartening about our findings is that there, Tom, has been a real backslide in federal progress to manage software licenses. So if you recall back in 2014, we did a comprehensive review of software licenses. Only two of 24 agencies had, had software license inventories. And then by 2020, all 24 had them. And this better management resulted in a cost savings of about $2.1 billion. Okay, fast forward to today, none of the nine selected agencies had such an inventory. And it's really disappointing for sure. And I think reinforces that old adage of, you know, what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed. Sure. Do you think that the cloud has played a role in this lack of knowledge because people have gone to online accounts, say, for, well, for Microsoft mainly, Office 365, you've got to have all your people. Each one of those is a license. And so maybe sure. the fact that it's somewhere buried in the cloud and there are value-added resellers and integrators that come between the agencies and the and Microsoft itself that might make it fuzzy or just less transparent than it might be. Right. I mean, I think that the cloud certainly plays a factor here. Um, but the bottom line is, like, when we really dug into the why, why agencies weren't tracking their under and over purchasing, it really boiled down to six agencies of the nine hadn't developed and implemented procedures for these activities. And the remaining three had procedures, but they weren't consistently executing them. So it really boils down to proper management. And who are the six truants? The six truants, those were the nine that we reviewed. I mean, they were all doing things that, that they shouldn't, but USDA, Energy, HUD, Justice, State, VA, OPM, SSA, and USAID. Right. So it's impossible then to really tell whether they are overpaying, and if so, by how much, without the data. Correct. 
Correct. And so we made 18 recommendations to the, those nine agencies to consistently track software license usage and to compare the inventories with the purchase licenses. And eight of those agencies agreed. One HUD had no comment. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll see some progress here. But, but overall, again, you know, to the, to the overall theme of, of this backslide, it, it's, it's something that we need to keep an eye on and make sure it doesn't happen again. And interestingly, the vendors themselves, can't they be the source? Can you call them up and say, hey, how many licenses have we got with you? Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, when we were going through our review, the, the information that many of the agencies provided came directly from those vendors. And, you know, that, that's something that I, I think is, is a real problem where, you know, the, the, these agencies need to have their own inventories and their own information um, in order to cross-check and ensure that, you know, these vendors are working from accurate data. Yeah. It's probably a stretch to think that a vendor that finds they have 25% excess licenses that an agency is paying for are going to call up that agency and give back 25% of their yearly revenue. Exactly. I mean, this is the American way here. Exactly. There's definitely money on the table here. All right. So the 18 recommendations are out. Most people agreed with them. HUD had no comment. Uh, Sounds like something you're going to keep track of because I think there's members of Congress that have been bird dogging this issue for quite some time, too. That's right. Absolutely. And who is responsible for keeping this data riding herd on this? Is it the CIO channel, the CFO, or somebody else? The CIOs are the ones that that should be responsible for, for championing and collecting this information for the enterprise. Ladies and gentlemen, you're on notice. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology and Acquisition Management at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information, a link to her report, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that, I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.